All right, everyone, let's take out our Bibles together. If you will, take out a copy of Scripture and turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 32. Exodus 32. I'd encourage you to look at it in your own copy. As always, the main text will not be up on the screens behind me. We will have some references up there, but the main text I'd encourage you to look at in your own copy as we'll be referring back to it time and time again. Last week we had an introductory sermon to this new series that we are now in on Exodus chapters 32 through 34. These chapters are absolutely foundational to the story of Scripture. They are some of the central chapters in all of the Bible, and yet they are often neglected because it is not as obvious how central they are as perhaps some other passages in Scripture. Last week we saw how the people came to Mount Sinai. God led them to Mount Sinai after he delivered them out of the hand of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He delivered them with a powerful hand and his awesome wonders through the ten plagues, if you remember. And then the parting of the Red Sea. And after those miraculous events, God leads the people to Mount Sinai. And when they come to the foot of Mount Sinai, God descends. God shows up. And he descends on the mountain in fire and smoke and thunder and lightning. And the people and even the mountain itself trembled. Now we come to a point where God has called Moses up to the mountain. He's left the people down at the foot of the mountain to wait on Moses. God is up there with Moses, or Moses is up there with God, rather, I should say, to spend time with the Lord, but also God gives him the law and the instructions for building the tabernacle. The tabernacle. If you remember, this was a tent that the Israelites were to set up so that God could dwell in the midst of their camp, so that God could dwell with them. God's giving Moses instructions on how he can be with His people, he wants to be with his people. These are the Israelites that he has redeemed for himself. He says, these are my people and I want to dwell with you. I want to give you the very greatest thing I could ever give to you, which is myself. And so God wants to dwell with them and be in their presence. But even as he has this heart for them and this desire for them, they display a much different heart. Today in our text, we will read the story of the golden calf. Exodus 32, starting in verse 1, we'll read down to verse 6. This is God's word. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses... The man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it 
And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now Moses, as we said, is up on the mountain, right? The people say, where is this guy? We don't know what's become of him. He's taking a long time, at least too long for these impatient Israelites. And so they go to Aaron. You remember Aaron? Aaron is Moses' brother. At the burning bush, God told Moses, since you have trouble speaking in public, apparently Moses had trouble with that. God told Moses, I'm going to give you your brother Aaron to help you and he can do it. He can be kind of your mouthpiece to the people and then to the Egyptians. So Aaron was Moses' brother, his right hand man. But the people go to him and say, make us gods. You see, Moses was their connection to God. Moses was their connection to God. He's gone. We don't know where he is. So make us gods who will go before us. And then we'll say, these are the gods who led us up out of Egypt. Aaron says to them, give me your gold. Now, where did they get this gold? Do you remember this? Where did the Israelites get all this gold? They were slaves. Well, during the the 10th plague, right after the 10th plague, I should say, as Pharaoh finally says, go, leave my presence, all of you all leave. The Israelites are walking out of Egypt, and what does the Lord do? The Lord makes the Egyptians predisposed to the Israelites in their minds and in their hearts. They they, They have favor among the Egyptians such that the Egyptians say, please take our gold. As you leave, here it is, take it as you go. And the scripture says, in that way, God had the Israelites plunder the Egyptians as if they were coming back with spoils of war. They plundered the Egyptians because God made the Egyptians so predisposed to them. They gave them their gold. And what do the Israelites do with the gold that God has given them? They melt it down and they make an idol and they worship it. Some commentators have likened this event in Exodus 32 to someone committing adultery on their spouse on their wedding night. I mean, think about it. They have just gotten here. They just came out of Egypt. They just saw what the Lord did in the ten plagues and the Red Sea. And now this, how quickly we turn aside from the Lord if we are not careful. This is a warning text to us this morning, and I want to give you four warnings from Exodus 32, 1 through 6. Four warnings that we must heed from this passage that God is giving to us graciously, showing us what the Israelites did and hoping we do not do the same. Warning number one, beware the desire to make your own God. Beware the desire to make your own God. The people were not content with the God they received. The people were not content with God as he gave himself to them. The people didn't like God's mysterious nature, and so they made their own. They made their own. Richard Baucom, who is a a New Testament or a Bible scholar, in his wonderful book, Who is God?, has a chapter on this particular event. And he says in that book, evidently they do not want a mysterious, holy, 
terrifying God hidden by the clouds at the top of a mountain that they are not allowed to approach, a God who speaks in thunder and lightning, they want a God they can get a hold of and control, a God actually made for them, a God they can carry around with them. I want you to notice the great reversal in what they have done In the way that God made us, in the way that God made all human beings, we were created by God and for God, right? We were created by God and we were created for God. God created human beings for himself. But they essentially reverse this and they create a God for themselves. They want a God that's made for them and by them. See, one of the the great truths that we humans have to reckon with is that God is not in existence for you. You were made for him. You were made for him. But we want a God that was made for us. We so often want a God that exists for us, to make much of us, to meet all of our needs, and to answer all of our requests. And brothers and sisters, God does not exist for us. We exist for him. We've got to reverse our thinking about this. God is not always in existence just for whatever you want and for whatever you need. No, it is our duty to glorify him. It is our duty to live for him. And the Israelites wanted the exact opposite. They wanted a God made for them. God is mysterious. Notice how they reject the mystery of God For a God they can see, touch, handle, control, carry around with them. But God is mysterious, and if you want him to be your God, you've got to make peace with that. God is not going to fit into the box that you make for him. He intentionally makes himself unseen, and he calls us to trust him. In the great Los Angeles crusade of 1949, Billy Graham once said, That God waits for people to come to him in faith. And the greatest test that he gives to see who will trust him is he hides himself. He makes himself invisible to see who will have faith in him. In Deuteronomy 4, actually, God is speaking to all the people through Moses. You remember Deuteronomy is after this event, after all the wonderings in the book of Numbers. Deuteronomy is when they're about to go to the promised land. But Moses says to the people, God is speaking to Moses, and Moses says to the people, on that day when God descended on the mountain, Mount Sinai, you didn't see his form. You saw fire, you saw smoke, you saw thunder, but you didn't see God in his form. You heard a voice, and that's exactly the way God wants it. God does not allow us to see him. He allows us to hear him, but not to see him. And so many people have problems with that. We can't see God. We can't really understand God. We can't wrap our hands around or our minds around this God. And since we cannot see God, God actually gave a commandment, one of the Ten Commandments. He says, do not make images of me. Remember that? It's the second of the Ten Commandments. We're not to make any images of God. We're not to make the invisible God visible. God hides himself, and he will not be reduced to anything that we can wrap our hands around or our minds around. 
And so the people, the Israelites, did essentially what Paul talks about in Romans 1. In Romans chapter 1, Paul uses this phrase, they exchanged the the ways of God for something else. He uses this phrase three times, and it's a progression. It's a progression that the ungodly always go through when they reject God. First, Paul says in Romans 1, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We see that clearly right here. Second, Paul says in Romans 1, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And third, they exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Their sexuality became perverted and twisted. And what I want you to see is this is always the progression. Idolatry always leads to immorality. Always. Idolatry always leads to immorality. You begin worshiping anything other than God, it always leads to immoral actions and behaviors. First, you do what Paul says, you you exchange the glory of God for lesser things. Perhaps in our day, it's not images. I don't know how many of you guys have an image of uh, an idol that you've ever had in your house or you've ever carried around. They do this in some countries even today, but in America, this is not very common. We don't have metal idols or wooden idols, but perhaps it's an image that you create in your own mind. We can create a false image of God in our minds. By getting what we know about God, not from scripture where he has told us about himself, but from other sources, from our own feelings, from our own culture, from rumors that have flown around. You exchange the glory of God for lesser things. Then you exchange the truth of God for a lie. Once you start creating your own God, perhaps it's in your head, then you begin to reject God's word. You begin to reject God's truth. You begin to move away from God's commands while still trying to hold on to some sense of God. But now it's not the God of the Bible that you are serving. It's some other God you've created. And then finally, eventually, idolatry leads to immorality. It always leads to immorality. Look at verse 6 in our text. What did it lead to with these people? Look at the very last sentence. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Isn't that an interesting way to say that? To play. It has connotations right there of sexual immorality. They're indulging in sexual immorality. Remember Paul, Romans 1, they exchange natural relations between men and women for unnatural immoral relations between those of the same sex. And so now you reach the end of the progression and instead of being made in God's image, you remember Genesis 1? We were made in God's image, male and female. He created them in his own image. Well, now instead of being made in God's image and accepting the way that he chose for us to express our sexuality and our gender, now what our culture has done is created a God in its own image, lowercase g, a false God based on little more than our own selfish and sinful desires. What happens when a society walks away from God? Well, all kinds of things 
But I'll tell you one thing that happens every single time. Sexual immorality. When a society walks away from God, sexual immorality happens every single time. Why? Without God, there is no true check on our desires, on our drives, specifically our sinful desires. Without God, there is no reason to deny yourself. And when that happens, sexual immorality always follows. This is our culture that we live in. This is a warning passage to us today. It could not be more relevant, brothers and sisters. And so beware of the the temptation, the desire to make your own God. Number two, beware of becoming impatient with God. Beware of becoming impatient with God. Look at verse 1. The people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain. And they said, we don't know what's happened to this, Moses. And where does it lead? Where does it lead? It leads to everything we just talked about. In Exodus 24, we learn that Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. The Bible actually says he had no food and drank no water. God was supernaturally sustaining him while he was up there. But notice, 40 days and 40 nights, it's a long time to go without food and water. It's a very short time for a group of people to say, okay, we're done with God. 40 days and 40 nights, that's all it took. Oh, how quickly we can forget all that God has done to us. Oh, how quickly we can turn aside and reject God when he does not operate on our timetable, right? Have you guys ever felt like God was slow? You ever felt like that? I have. Man, oh man, I have. I could tell you stories about the the prayers of frustration that I was giving up to God during different points of my life saying, God, when are you going to act? When are you going to do this? There are still times when I pray to God, saying things like, God, I've been praying for this same thing for years, for actually a couple decades. There's a particular thing I've been praying for, and God has seen fit not to grant it. You ever feel like God is slow? Where are you, God? When will you deliver me from this? When will you show up? Brothers and sisters, God is not on your schedule. God is not on your schedule. And if you want him to be your God, you have to make peace with that. You have to reckon with that. Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3 that God is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. You read that passage and you understand our definition of slow is very different from God's. We are an impatient people. If something doesn't work immediately, we think something must be wrong. We feel this need to fix it, to do something that works. And so much of growing in holiness is learning to do what the Bible says over and over again, to wait on the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. You remember Abraham and Sarah? God promised Abraham, even though he was old, advanced in years, even though his wife, Sarah, was actually barren, infertile, she could not have children, and they were really old, God promised them a son. He promised them a son. But it was 25 years from the time God made that promise to the time Isaac was born. 25 years. That was God's timetable. And yet in the middle of that, Sarah goes to Abraham and says, Abraham, we need to take matters into our own hands. 
I want you to sleep with my maidservant. We'll make this happen through her. They took matters into their own hands because they were not willing to wait on the Lord to bring about his purpose in his ways, in his timing. That is what waiting on the Lord is, brothers and sisters. Trusting in the Lord to bring about his purposes in his ways, in his timing. Our text today shows us that impatience, if unchecked, impatience with God leads to idolatry. It leads to rejecting God altogether. God's not going to do it? Fine. I'll find some other God who will. Whether it's the God of money or power or worldly wisdom or whether it's the God of self. Perhaps our greatest example, positive example in scripture of waiting on the Lord is David. David. You remember David's story. David was anointed as the next king of Israel as a little shepherd boy. Remember Samuel doing that. But the the text actually tells us in the Old Testament that after David was anointed as the next king of Israel, he went back to the sheep. He went back to being a shepherd and waited for God to bring it about. Next thing he knows, the person who is the king at that time, Saul, calls for him. Saul called for David because his spirit was tormented and it was suggested to him, maybe you can bring in a musician. Perhaps this, this boy David, we've heard him play on his harp. He's very good. Saul brings him in to play soothing music to soothe his spirit and his soul. But pretty soon, through various events, including David and Goliath, Saul becomes jealous of that young boy. The people's hearts start to turn to David and turn away from Saul. And in fact, Saul's heart starts to turn away from God. And God's favor begins to rest on David. But it says David ran from Saul. Saul was the king. He had the power. And he sought to put David to an end. And David, from all accounts that we understand in the Bible, was running from Saul for years. And as he ran, there were two particular instances where he had the chance to kill Saul right on the spot. It was like the Lord had delivered Saul into David's hand. And he had the chance right then and there. There would have been no repercussions. It was easy to do it both times. And both times David refused. And when his men asked, why won't you kill this man who is unjustly pursuing you? Why won't you kill this man? You're the Lord's anointed. You're supposed to be the next king. And David says, no, it is not for me to end his life. It is not for me to bring about the Lord's ways in my own way. It is not for me to take matters into my own hands. I will wait on the Lord and wait on his timing. Beware, brothers and sisters, of becoming impatient with the Lord, for it leads to idolatry. Beware, third, beware the desire to mix religions. Beware the desire to mix religions. There's a part of our text today that might have been confusing to you. Specifically, verse 5 After they make the golden calf, they say, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Aaron builds an altar, makes a proclamation, and says, Tomorrow shall be a feast to whom? To the Lord. What is that about? And then verse 6, They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. You see, what's going on is they wanted a golden calf, and yet they wanted a feast to the Lord. They wanted to offer burnt offerings, verse 6, and yet at the same time they wanted to indulge in sinful pleasure. They wanted it both ways. 
And Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. But no one can serve two masters. We often think we can. A lot of times we think we can. And Jesus says, it doesn't work like that. That's not the way God's made your heart. Your heart can only have one master at a time. And it's either the Lord or it's something else. But you can't serve two. Aaron and the people wanted God, but they wanted him on their own terms. They wanted God. They wanted all the benefits that come from God, but they want him on their own terms. They want other gods as well. You see, these Israelites, if you remember, they grew up in a polytheistic culture. Polytheism, worshiping multiple gods. That's Egypt. They all grew up in Egypt. They've all been raised in a culture where they worship tons of gods. There was a god for everything. And there was a statue for each one of those gods. They worshiped all kinds of gods in Egypt, and that's where the Israelites grew up. And so they're still learning to come out of this. God is bringing them out of this polytheism, false religion, and teaching them, no, there is one God. I am the God of the universe and the only one, and you are to worship me alone. So they're learning this. They're learning this, but the people are not innocent in this because if you follow the timeline of Exodus, God's already given them the Ten Commandments. At Exodus 32 right here, God has already given the Ten Commandments to Moses, and Moses came down and told the people. The Ten Commandments come in Exodus 20. As Bible students, it's really good for us to just kind of put that away in long-term memory. Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, right? But Moses, it says, came down. Look at Exodus 24.3 with me. You can see this up on the screens. Exodus 24.3, Moses came down and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules... And then it says, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then Moses went back up the mountain. And then this happens. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. The Ten Commandments. They've received the Ten Commandments. And what do they include? What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods but me. What's the second commandment? You shall not make for yourself any image or any likeness of anything that is on the earth. The first of the Ten Commandments is really, don't worship anyone other than me, God is saying. The second commandment is really God saying, don't worship me in the improper manner of trying to make this invisible God visible, right? What's wrong with making an image of God? What's wrong with making some kind of statue and and looking at it and saying, I'm thinking of God as I look at that statue. What's wrong with that? You always reduce God to something he is not. You always distort and diminish God anytime you try to make him visible. You can't make an image of God. No images, no graven images, the King James Version memorably says. And that's specifically referring to things like what Aaron did in verse 1. or what, No, it was, I'm sorry, it's verse 4. Verse 4. He took a graving tool and fashioned it into that golden calf. And so the people want to, they want to mix religions. They want God and they want their own gods too. They want a polytheistic culture. But God says, no, if you want to come to me, you must forsake all other gods. 
you want to come to God, you've got to forsake everything else. He must sit on the throne of your heart and him alone. Nothing else. You can't mix worship of the one true God with anything else. People have tried. But what does it lead to? Again, we come back to that progression. It leads to rejecting God altogether. You try to mix religions. It begins by saying things like, I believe all the parts of the Bible except this one right here. Except this one. That's where it begins. That's Satan's foot in the door. Next, you're saying things like, I think Jesus was a good teacher. And there's a lot of great moral lessons in the Bible. But all of those other things, I mean, come on. Really, it's, it's 2022. Let's get with the times. Pretty soon, God and the Bible will be thrown out altogether. It is not long before that happens. Because no one can serve two masters. When you come to God, you've got to come on his terms and his alone. And so that's our third warning. Our fourth and final warning is this. Beware leaders who lack conviction. Beware leaders who lack conviction. Aaron has a position of leadership here. He's in charge, essentially, while Moses is up on the mountain away. But he lacks the conviction needed for leadership. He is easily swayed by popular opinion and peer pressure. He is a people pleaser. He cares more about what the people want than what God wants. Now contrast that with what we see from Moses as we read through the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. What do you find with Moses' leadership? Well, Moses was grumbled and complained against over and over again. Moses was rebelled against. Some even tried to force Moses out as leader, and it didn't matter. Moses refused to budge one inch from God's commands. He sticks with the Lord through it all, and he doesn't give a rip if he's unpopular. He does not care. Because what good is having the approval of the people if you don't have the approval of God himself. What good is spending this small vapor of a life being popular if you end up being rejected by God for all eternity? God's people desperately need leaders like this today who are not people pleasers but have the conviction to stand up for what is right even in the face of opposition There are a number of leaders like this in the church today, and I praise the Lord for them. But by and large, the church in America is being led into compromise with the world because it has leaders who care way too much about popular opinion. They are easily swayed by the pressure of the masses. And instead of leading the church to be a light of truth in a dark world, the church is becoming irrelevant Because we're trying to have religion on the one hand and make everybody happy on the other. And it will not work. It's never going to work. Jesus said in Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. If you were to ask the Israelites, the Jews, in the first century, what kind of of leader do you need? They'd give you all of these qualifications, all of these 
all of these requirements for the leader that they needed to come and, and help them and save them and teach them. And God sent them the leader that they needed. God sent them the exact person that they needed. And what did they do with him? They rejected him and killed him. And he was exactly what they needed. True leaders don't always make everybody happy. When the Pharisees were plotting how to trap Jesus in his words, they decided to ask him a question about paying taxes to Caesar. Do you remember this? And in Matthew twenty-two sixteen, we read, They sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Watch what they say about Jesus. Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. That was our Lord. Or we think of Peter and John in the book of Acts being questioned by the Jewish leaders who were pressuring them to stop speaking out in the name of Jesus. And Peter replies to them and says, Judge for yourself whether we should obey God or you. Do you think we should obey God or we should obey you? And essentially what Peter was saying is, Do you actually think we're more afraid of what will happen if we disobey you then what would happen if we disobeyed God himself? When you've got a perspective like that, they can't touch you. It is often said today to those who are holding on to the biblical teaching on sexuality and gender, you need to get on the right side of history. Brothers and sisters, we would much rather be on the right side of eternity. Eternal perspectives change everything. An eternal perspective changes everything. And so beware leaders who lack conviction. The church needs leaders who have the conviction of God's word. Or they are even, they are even willing to stand for it in the midst of opposition of their own people. Now we said earlier that God in the second of the Ten Commandments said that we are not to make any images of himself. No images of God. Do not make the invisible God visible. But one of the beauties of that is that God has chosen an image of himself and given it to us, given him to us. The book of Hebrews says of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. And so if you want to know what God is like, you look to Jesus, the perfect image of the invisible God. And Jesus is not just looking for leaders who are willing to go against popular opinion. He is looking for followers who are willing to deny this world, deny themselves, and take up their cross and follow him. And so I put that to you today. Are you willing to follow Christ no matter what it costs you in relational collateral? Are you willing to follow Christ no no matter what it costs you in worldly terms? In Luke 9, verse 24, Jesus said, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. If you want to hold on to everything that you've got in this world, well, you'll spend however long your life is with all that. And then for eternity, you'll lose everything, including your life. But if you are willing here and now to give up everything you have in this world, to give up your very life 
and to say to Jesus, you take control. I don't want control anymore. You've got it. And you come in and do whatever you want with it. If you are willing to do that, to make that step of faith, Jesus says you will keep your life for all eternity. What will you choose? Right now we're going to spend some time in silent prayer. We do this every week here at Columbia Christian. After we hear from the Lord and his word, we all need to respond. All of us. It's going to look different for every single one of us. And so we give this time of silent prayer for all of us to go to the Lord and to to speak back to him whatever he has laid on our hearts and to reckon with what we just heard. And so we ask you to pray for just a few moments and to respond to God. After you do, we'll come back and we'll have an invitation time where anyone who needs to respond to the word publicly can do so. But right now, let's pray silently together.